0: Food is a basic necessity of life. Uh We literally can't live without it. But our relationship with food can be complicated. So the existence of eating disorders isn't really that surprising. Hey there, I'm Ali Astrocyte, and in this episode of Neurotransmissions, we're gonna get a little bit heavy. Eating disorders are a difficult and serious topic, but this week, we're gonna talk about some advances scientists have made in understanding these disorders in order to develop better, more effective treatments. disorder actually covers a broad range of conditions the two most commonly depicted in popular media are anorexia nervosa and bulimia anorexia nervosa is characterized by extreme caloric restriction people who suffer from anorexia usually maintain strict control over what they eat eating only a few hundred calories per day if they eat anything at all because of this people with anorexia frequently show extreme weight loss Bulimia usually entails cycles of binging and purging, eating a lot of food, then making themselves vomit, using laxatives, or exercising excessively to purge their bodies of the calories they've just consumed. Bulimia can be harder to see because often people with bulimia maintain a fairly steady weight. Hmm. These disorders affect mostly young women, but they're becoming more common in men too. And these aren't the only two eating disorders out there. There's also binge eating disorder, where an individual loses control over their eating and consumes far more calories than recommended in a short period of time. This can lead to obesity and other related health problems, and it doesn't discriminate. Both men and women experience binge eating disorder at about the same rate. Eating disorders are no small problem either. About 30 million people in the United States suffer from an eating disorder. That would be like all of Boston, Houston, Chicago, Phoenix, and San Francisco combined. Many people may have the misconception that eating disorders aren't really disorders at all, that they're really just a reflection of the vanity or greediness of an individual. But in reality, eating disorders are serious psychiatric illnesses recognized by doctors and psychologists. And it turns out there's some pretty interesting neuroscience going on too. One of the things that makes eating disorders so serious is that they're very hard to treat up to a third of people who receive treatment for anorexia end up relapsing and many of those who recover physically still struggle with obsessions about their weight and food intake a study published in the summer of 2015 found out that part of why recovery is so difficult may be that anorexia and other eating disorders aren't a case of strong willpower or picky eating in fact anorexic behaviors seem to become habits so deeply ingrained that sufferers aren't even aware of their food choices. This particular study used functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, which uses blood flow in the brain to help scientists track brain activity changes. 21 patients being treated for anorexia nervosa, along with 21 control participants, were asked to rate food on a scale from one to five, where one was unhealthy, three was neutral, and five was healthy. They were also asked to rate food on a taste scale from one to five one was bad, three was neutral, and five was good. A food item they had ranked as neutral on both taste and healthiness was randomly selected, and while participants were having their brain scanned in the fMRI, They were asked to make different food choices between the neutral item and the other foods they had previously ranked. What the scientists found was that individuals with anorexia had a lot more activity than controls in a brain region called the dorsal striatum when they were making decisions about which food they wanted to eat. The dorsal striatum is a region that's associated with reinforcement learning, basically habit formation, and decision making. These results indicated to the scientists that it wasn't so much as the women with anorexia were choosing not to eat or choosing to only eat super healthy food, but rather that they were unconsciously slipping back into a deeply ingrained habit. So it might be that treating eating disorders successfully requires more of a habit breaking approach like we use with substance abuse rather than simply telling sufferers to stop acting that way. There's also evidence that other brain regions show different patterns of activity in patients recovering from anorexia in a region called the insula. The insula is a part of the cortex that helps the brain identify what it's tasting. Along with other brain regions, like the amygdala and the orbitofrontal cortex, the insula helps us identify what tastes we like and don't like. More activity is seen in these regions when we're hungry and less when we're full. These brain areas, along with the ventral striatum, help determine how motivated we are by food. When individuals with normal eating patterns are given a sweet tasting stimulus during brain imaging, there's a lot of activity seen in the insula. The more they report liking sugar, the more activity in the insula. On the other hand, Patients who are recovering from anorexia show lower levels of activity in the insula, which might indicate that they find the sugary taste less pleasurable than their control counterparts. These individuals appear to actually experience taste differently, even after recovery. Hmm. Scientists interpret this as indicating that people who suffer from anorexia are less driven by hunger and appetite signals than usual and with less motivation to eat, it may be easier for these individuals to drive themselves to the edge of starvation. Researchers are still working to understand the neuroscience of eating disorders and are currently limited by available scientific techniques to help them break down the biology of the brain. But these results are helping doctors and psychologists determine their approach to treatment. For example, since anorexia seems to be connected to ingrained habits, doctors now recommend that patients in recovery try eating in new places, to help break the habits formed by disordered eating. And hopefully as scientists continue to develop new techniques, we can continue to develop new treatments. In the meantime, there are a lot of resources out there to help individuals with disordered eating recover. If you or someone you know is struggling with an eating disorder, please check out the resources we've listed in the description below. Thanks so much for watching this week's episode of Neurotransmissions. If you enjoyed it, hit subscribe to become a brainiac.
1: All right, you guys can go check out this wonderful, wonderful um, young lady's uh, YouTube channel. It's called Neurotransmissions. And this is very important for us to kind of understand the neuroscience, right? Uh, How your brain activity works when it comes to eating disorders. Um, I know especially in America, we're kind of used to going to the opposite uh, extreme of the spectrum, right? So you have like obesity and then you'll also have like um, eating disorders or like what they not call skinny, but like unhealthy weight. Um, as far as being, um, this not weighing enough. So if we always, we all want to find a healthy medium, right? So if you're a man or a woman, but mostly this actually, um, affects a lot of women. If you are a man or a woman and you have this problem, or like she said, all of them are considered eating disorders, right? So by me being a bigger woman or a plus size or BBW, Um, I have to work on not eating as much, like what they would call binge eating, you know, like, or emotional eating at night, which we're going to talk about that um, in just a second. Um, So I have to focus on that. But if you're like really, really like, I can't eat that. That's disgusting. And it's going to, you know, when it comes to the point of like obsession and getting in the way of your happiness, then you as well have an eating disorder, right? So we can't um, point out the style in a person's eye and not focus on our own. So the uh, focus on this channel is always, always to focus on um, how we can better ourselves depending on whatever end of the spectrum you end up uh, being on. All right. We all have something to work on. You guys be encouraged. If there's anything that you need to as first as reach out on, I am not a, a doctor or a therapist or anything like that. Um, these are just, uh, different resources. I like to pull in from people who actually are studied and experienced in these areas and treating people with these things, different things. You guys can always reach out to your PCP, your primary care physician, and, or you can call the back of your insurance card if you have it. Um, you can call them back and they'll give you different um, places that actually take your insurance or if you need to go to therapy, outpatient or inpatient to kind of help you work through a few of these things, right? We all are in the process of breaking bad habits. Um, So it's just, you know, stay encouraged, okay?
2: Hi, my name is Mary Conkrite, and I'm one of the nurse practitioners at the Children's Hospital of Richmond.
3: Pediatric Endocrinology Clinic, and the Healthy Lifestyle Center. Hi there, I'm Priscilla Powell. I'm a clinical health psychologist at the Healthy Lifestyle Center. Today we're going to talk about emotional eating, which is a behavior that has skyrocketed this past year while we've all been at home during COVID-19. So stress, anxiety, fear, loneliness, and especially boredom are common triggers of emotional eating for us as adults, for our teens, as well as our kids. So thinking about it, you know, for an entire year, we've been at home constantly roaming around, always within a few footsteps of the kitchen. So it makes sense that there's been a lot more snacking throughout the day and sometimes night for everyone in the household.
2: It's so true, Priscilla. Um,
3: so with this in mind, you know,
2: let's really take a look at the difference between physical hunger or our body's way to tell us when we need to refuel and emotional hunger. So physical hunger tends to come on gradually and can be postponed for a bit. We can feel satisfied with lots of different types of food when we eat for physical hunger. And we're more likely to listen to our body's fullness cues to stop eating when we are full. Emotional hunger, on the other hand, Usually feels very sudden and urgent, um, and we often get cravings for specific foods when we're eating for emotional hunger. Foods like ice cream or chips, hot Cheetos or cookies, um, and we tend to really overeat these foods because we aren't in tune with our fullness cues when we're eating, and we can also this can also lead to feelings of guilt or shame after eating for emotional reasons. And
3: and Mary. I- further than that in that we we have actually high risk situations or triggers that may lead us to to, to, um, engage in emotional eating rather than physical hunger. So first we have those emotions mentioned earlier, the stress, the anxiety, the loneliness and boredom, as well as positive emotions that can lead to emotional hunger and emotional eating. And these are things like excitement, joy and relief, which we hope is going to be coming more and more these days. There's there's certain activities that can also trigger us to eat when we aren't hungry. And a big one being screen time, watching TV, playing video games, or scrolling through social media can all be triggers for emotional eating. And then there are also certain people or places that can can lead to emotional eating, such as you know stopping off at a fast food restaurant since you just happen to pass on the way at home, rather than actually being hungry, or when the kids spend the day with grandma and maybe they just got into the habit of stopping off at a convenience store for one more special snack just because, without again without necessarily being hungry or at a meal time. So Mary, one question you know I've gotten from a lot of parents when we talk about emotional eating and these different patterns and high risk situations is, what's the big deal? Like, why does it really matter if our kids have a few extra snacks each day? Yeah,
2: that's a great question. Well, I think first, most importantly, it's really important for your child to learn how to tune in to their urge to eat when they are experiencing true physical hunger. And so we, you know, as parents, want to help role model that for them. Um, In addition, the foods people typically eat when they're eating for emotional hunger are usually not as nutritious right they're usually higher in, you know calories, sugar or fat, which really will not provide the fuel your child needs and also can lead to weight gain. So, you know, Now that we've talked about the difference between physical hunger and emotional hunger, as well as high risk eating situations, um, the next step is to think about how to really set yourself and your family up for success to prevent or reroute these patterns of emotional eating. So really the first step is eating meals and snacks on a regular schedule. Um, this will really help you stay on track without getting too hungry and then risking overeating. It um, may also help you become more aware of when you have an urge to eat at a time that is not a regular meal time. So that can also help clue you in that this is not physical hunger. Um, so how do how do we do this? You know, how do we really set the home environment up for success? You know, having healthy snacks around um, for times when emotional eating may occur. So consider having healthy snacks like fruits or vegetables, whole grain snacks versus less healthy foods or um, kind of the the junky snacks like candy or refined sugar chips and things like that. I think
3: step two, what comes next, is really checking in with yourself as the parent or the caregiver, and then modeling this process for your kids to really you know, take a moment to look at what's going on in your body and in your brain. And before you eat, ask yourself questions like, what am I feeling right now? Is it physical hunger or is it something else? Am I stressed, am I bored, am I lonely, am I anxious, am I happy, am I joyful? Simply pausing and evaluating the situation can help them understand what's leading you to make certain
1: food choices and even behaviors. And then it
3: may help you prevent these behaviors in the
1: future. I think that that was so great. Um, That was from VCU Health. And these are beautiful um, nurse practitioners and people that work in a profession, not only with children, but helping the caregivers like us parents or if you're a caregiver. Uh, you might not have any children. You might be a good, a good fun aunt or a uncle, or you might be co-parenting, right? These can also be tips you can share with um, whether you're a single dad or a single mom with the other parent, also with grandma, right? I have to do that as well. So this is important for us to kind of, um, like they said, model to our children, right? So I, I've, I've always shared with my children. Even now, I've been on low sodium for probably about two months, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, to get uh, blood pressure and stuff like that under control, which is under control. Um, thank, thank God, right? Thank God. But I'm very grateful without medication. Um, just with herbs and taking vitamins and literally cutting that sodium down. Right? There's a lot of hidden sodium and stuff that I thought I knew, but I didn't know. So this is why I think it's important to always remain humble, remain teachable. Because when you think you know everything, no one can tell you anything, right? And so we don't never want to come to the point where we're like spouting off information. Um, in a um, very visceral and venomous way to try to shame people. This is not to shame like, oh, my God, you're emotionally eating or, oh, overweight or, oh, you're too skinny. Right. We don't want to do that um, because basically those people are very similar. Right. Um, So you always want to kind of, you know, just put the information out there, um, give the people the facts, back it up with the science. Right. And then you want to have the empathy link to say, hey, I understand. Even with your children, I have a Different extremes in my home, as well, right? <laughs> we all know that children, different children need different things from their parents, and that, that's hard to balance in itself, right? That takes a lot of humility, a lot of teachableness, and maybe getting it wrong sometimes. And then you can even apologize to your children and say, hey, we're going to do this now, right? It's okay to change, it's okay to be flexible, right? And it's okay to be adaptable. So I have some children, especially one in particular, um, actually, two. They love to raid the refrigerator. Like when I'm asleep, I'm knocked out. They raid they raid in the refrigerator and you'll find like bologna here and you know, <laughs> you'll know, you find chips there. Then I have two other children, right? I have a lot of kids, two other children where I have to kind of like make them eat. So I actually see these at two different extremes in my children. And then I've even seen the one extreme in myself with the emotional eating. A lot of times being a single parent, we do not have the other parent there, whatever your circumstance Um, When people say here, single parent, they think like statistic or like in a negative stereotype of Shaquisha or or if you're another race, trailer park trash, Sally. Right. Like you just opening your legs up, having kids with everybody. No, it could be different situations. You could have had a, a relationship that didn't work out. You could have been married to someone. You guys got divorced, whatever. It could have been a one night stand and you had a baby and that baby is your blessing. But what I'm saying is as single parents, because I have empathy for all situations, even though I don't understand all situations, you know? Um, so being a single parent, we don't have another person to kind of lean on or speak to in that matter or to pour to the children in the same way. Right. Well, in a different way, but you know what I mean, as far as like having something else to offer. So we kind of contend to do the um, emotional eating, right? Like I love how that nurse practitioner said, you can start talking to your children about this, right? What type of hunger is this? Because you could be hungry for something that is not necessarily food, right? So as a single parent, if I'm sitting there in the bed at night, okay, which I love to eat at night, um, and I'm eating snacks, I'm just like, oh my God, I am just, I need something sweet, or I need some uh, something salty, or... Um, I need something that also could be, um, physiological as well. So you want to check with your doctor about that. Like, why am I craving these things? Right. Or your body is addicted to those substances. Um, or I just, um, I need to get a cereal bar or a granola, you know, whatever you like to eat. Right. Um, you have to ask, I ask myself, like, why am I doing this? And the majority of it with me personally, just to be candid and to be transparent is horniness. Like I don't have a partner there because normally when I was in a relationship, I was having a lot of sex at night, like a lot. Other than if they were working. And then as soon as they got off, I was like, let's let's get it on. Let's get it on. OK, so some parents actually can't wait as a single parent. Right. You might eat more. And then you have to deal with all of the things dealing with the children, with the school, with their personality, with trying to show them things, different things, their own uh, building, their confidence the things they're struggling with. You're doing that basically by yourself, unless you have a very good support system, which most single parents really don't, you know, not that we're ungrateful. It's just, it's just the truth. And it's not to make a victim out of ourselves because we all made our decisions, right? Some parents may make the decision to to, um, co-parent, you know, in a healthy manner where both of the parents is helping. But if they don't, the parent that's raising the children, all of the stuff falls on them. That's the decision you made, right? The other parent chose not to be bothered at all. Right, so whatever their mental health status that's on them. So, a lot of that stuff falls on the, the single parents. You have to ask yourself to be honest with yourself. And so, what I've been doing is, um, like last night, I ate a salad, a big salad. And now, you got to be careful with the salad dressing because remember, low sodium. So, I have bought very low sodium and um, even made some of my own salad dressings up out of apple cider vinegar and oil. And I love herbs, right? I love, love herbs, it doesn't taste as bad as you think. Um, if you don't like vinegar taste, there's other recipes you can find on Google. So I'm, I ate a huge salad. I've been eating so much, so much salad and a big old plate of broccoli. I like to eat. And I know if I like something crunchy, I've been buying and putting stuff like next to my bed or stuff in the um, cabinet that I just keep it in there. So like at night, if I'm getting up, I have some mango slices in there or I have some plantain chips. You know what I mean? I said that I'm just I just be eating good all the time because I do eat some of the bad stuff. I might get a little Reese's cup. But if I don't buy it, I don't have it. Right. And especially with Halloween coming up, we're buying stuff for our kids. I have not bought that yet because last year I bought that candy and I was eating them Snickers and them three musketeers. I'm not even really a huge candy, bar, a huge candy bar person. Right. Or like yesterday, I bought um, the healthy candy bars from like Plum Market or Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or whatever your farmer's market is, like dark chocolate, which is good for you. You can't eat the whole thing, but if I want a little chocolate, I got a little dark chocolate up there that's mixed with a little organic raspberry. You know what I'm saying? Just a little, uh mm, uh mm, mm, eat that, and then I'm going to go to sleep. Because normally I would like to be getting a little, uh-uh-uh, but I'm putting some food in my mouth other than my husband's penis to be candid, right? So... Whatever spectrum you fall on, if you're emotionally eating and you're overweight and you're obese, then, you know, it's, listen, I'm not saying, hey, it's okay. It's not. We all want to be healthy. Um, and I have bad habits and I'm like battling against myself. Or if you're on the opposite spectrum where you like a control, you know, it's like a control type of thing, right? Um, and you're suppressing your emotions where you're like not eating and that's giving you this false sense of superiority or being like extra disciplined. That's actually not healthy as well. So whatever spectrum you're on, and I have children that are on both of these spectrums, right? And I got two of them that's in between. They have a healthy balance of both. You understand? So I can understand it through my children, through myself, and hopefully you can do that with other people as well. Right? So with the shaming of how your body, oh my God, you're so skinny. Oh my God, you're so big. The shaming is actually like a cover-up, uh, not looking at yourself. So I don't shame women or men that are really skinny. I actually like men that are very slim, okay? Oh, okay, I like a thick man as well. You know, you got a pretty, you got a nice-looking face, but I actually like very slim men. Uh, my kids' fathers are slim men. You know, I just like it, okay? I just really enjoy it. But I also like a little thick every now and then, a little red bone, a nice red bone man. Right. So if you're a woman and you're like on, if you're like a size, um, I don't know what size that they get. Cause I'm plus size baby. But if you're a smaller size, there should be no reason for you to be shaming another woman. Um, especially if you know that you have like extreme restrictions in your diet that you might be in denial about. Maybe I have a, you know, I'm not eating enough. You know what I mean? Or if you're really big, I also don't think that it's fair for us to talk about slimmer women because I have very slim daughters. Right. And I have very thick daughters. Right. So I don't really look at it like that. I just look at it as like, is you eating enough? Um, is you healthy? Am I healthy? Am I eating enough? Am I eating too much? And then it's just a balance, right? And then if you need help again, they have, uh, they have group therapy, they have, um, uh, nutritionists, right. That you can, you can go see dietitians and things of that nature that's available through your, um insurance. If you don't have insurance, there's no shame. They also have things based off of your state or county that you can get help with as well. And it, sometimes it might be a bit of a waiting uh on a waiting list, but that's okay. They have free resources. You can check out um things on YouTube about nutrition and stuff like that, even psychology, right? You can check that stuff out. Like just type it in. Why do I eat so much or why I'm not eating enough? And you can look at those things and it helps you to look at yourself and then you kind of look out at other people. Their disorder may may manifest in a different way right? But it doesn't mean that you don't have a disorder. That's the way I look at it. So we all want to have order. We all want to be healthy, right? Uh, we all are trying to break habits. Some habits we like, some habits we don't. All right. So this is Humble Day. You guys have a wonderful day and let's get to learning and being humble and being teachable.